This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of child abuse, sexual harassment, and domestic violence. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. A dry wind blew across the California desert. 50 miles in any direction, there was only sand, sunbathing lizards, and two young country musicians crouched next to a 1957 Jaguar Roadster. Johnny Cash rocked back and forth in the limited shade provided by the car. His friend, singer Johnny Western, patted his back. Cash was in the throes of a breakdown. He could no longer remember how many amphetamines he had taken that day, but he kept taking more anyway. He unloaded his anxieties on Western in mile-a-minute babble. He was an addict. His marriage was a sham. He felt trapped by his family. To cap it all off, he was one of the most famous musicians in the world and traveled the road more than 250 days a year without any rest. Western listened to it all with an understanding nod. He tried to comfort his friend and told him to take a break. Nobody expected Johnny Cash to be a superhero. But Cash could barely hear him. In his mind, he was on stage under the hot lights and piercing gazes of thousands of fans. All he felt was pressure. And all he heard was hungry applause. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. In this show, we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind the cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our fourth episode exploring the dark side of the music industry. The business has, especially in the last century, been synonymous with some of the most sordid aspects of our society. From rampant drug use to the exploitative creation of pop stars to brutal violence and murder, the industry can be a volatile and dangerous environment. You can find episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
This week, we'll take a look at Johnny Cash, one of the best-selling musicians of all time. Throughout his career, Cash took on the persona of the outlaw, but there was a price for his forays into darkness. For almost 50 years, Cash suffered from addiction, depression, and a never-ending pressure to perform. But before all that, his world was confined to the cotton fields of rural Arkansas. Johnny Cash was born J.R. Cash on February 26, 1932, in Kingsland, Arkansas. He was the middle child in a staunch Southern Baptist family with seven children. Johnny's parents, Ray and Carrie Cash, were tenant farmers who struggled to make ends meet. Johnny grew up toiling in the cotton fields, starting at the age of eight. He was supervised by his father, a man who made sure Johnny learned about the dark side of life early on. Once, when Johnny was young, his childhood dog had a litter of puppies. Ray claimed the family couldn't afford to feed them and ordered Johnny to bring them to the riverbank. While Johnny watched, Ray put the newborn pups in a sack and threw them in the river. Afterward, he shot the puppy's mother. Johnny never forgot the sound of the gunshot mingled with the frantic splashing of the puppies trying to escape the burlap sack. Memories like this haunted Johnny. His father's callous behavior caused him to grow into a quiet boy who sought approval wherever he could get it. Unfortunately, his emotional development would only be twisted further by tragedy as he aged. The worst day of Johnny's life was May 13, 1944. That morning, 12-year-old Johnny woke up feeling uneasy. His mother and his older brother Jack, aged 14, had the same strange unearthly premonition that something bad would happen soon. Unfortunately, their worst fears came to pass. While working at the nearby sawmill, Jack struck up a conversation with a neighbor boy and didn't notice the saw guard was not properly in place. The blade jumped when Jack pulled it back toward him. It caught him in the stomach and went straight through to the intestines. Johnny was on his way home from the river with his fishing pole when he saw his father running down the road carrying his brother's bloody clothes. Jack was taken to the hospital and put on morphine. He stayed there for days, floating in and out of consciousness. At times, he rambled incoherently, but at others, he was perfectly lucid. After a week, Jack passed away. Before he died, he asked his mother if she could hear the angels singing. No one could tell whether he was hallucinating or not, but Johnny always believed the angels his brother heard were real. Johnny never got over the death of his brother. He always felt guilty for predicting disaster and for failing to stop him from going to work that day. His guilt was made much worse by his father. Ray Cash told Johnny flatly on several occasions that Johnny should have been the one to die. He said the 12-year-old shouldn't have been wasting his time fishing while his brother worked to support the family. His words shattered Johnny, made all the worse by the fact that, deep down, he believed them. He would struggle his entire life to feel that he deserved to live and thrive. The gnawing sense of inadequacy instilled in him by his father created a powerful need for external validation. He craved the love of others, but simultaneously felt unworthy of it. One of the only things that helped Johnny deal with his emptiness after his brother's death was music. He started visiting a neighbor to learn the guitar and wrote poems, which he sometimes read at school. Despite Johnny's shyness and sometimes halting delivery, other students later remembered that they were impressed by the poems. Johnny found writing poems and songs to be safe ways to express his emotions. It also allowed him to dream about his future. He didn't exactly know what he wanted to do with the rest of his life, 
but he knew he didn't want to spend it in the cotton fields. In 1950, at the age of 18, he searched for his calling, as many men did, by joining the military. After the Korean War began in June, Johnny signed up for four years in the Air Force. Johnny did well in the force and was eventually promoted to staff sergeant in charge of a unit of 40 other soldiers in Germany. His comrades got along with him well, but described him as relatively quiet. He rarely went out partying and preferred to pass time in the barracks with a small group of friends. In later years, Johnny sometimes exaggerated about his time overseas. He claimed that he smuggled contraband onto the base, got in fights with his superior officers, and often went out carousing at bars. Soldiers who served alongside him said that many of those claims were hyperbole. According to them, Johnny was more likely to stay in his room at the base and read the Bible rather than start a fight. He sometimes went out drinking with them, but rarely got out of control. Still, there were moments when the darker side of Johnny Cash showed itself. One night, he went out with a friend and got very drunk. As his friend helped him back to the base, they saw a black soldier walking down the street holding hands with a white German girl. Johnny saw the two together and went ballistic. He started cursing at the soldier and screamed racist epithets. He had to be restrained by his friend. Eventually, military police got involved and forced him to calm down. The incident shocked many in the barracks who had never heard Johnny say an unkind word to anyone at all, much less anything racist. It seems that growing up in the Depression-era South had shaped his beliefs more than he let on. In fact, most of Johnny's closest friends at the base were fellow Southerners. A few of them got together regularly to play country music and sing together. They even formed a band called the Landsberg Barbarians, though they only played in public together once. Most of their musical activity was for their own private entertainment. The camaraderie and private practice helped Johnny hone his singing abilities and skill at the guitar. As he improved, he started to dream about becoming a professional musician. Singing gave him an outlet to express his feelings, which his father never permitted him to do while growing up. But music wasn't the only way Johnny searched for love and acceptance. He also began to date a woman he met during training in San Antonio, Vivian Liberto. Despite barely spending any time with Vivian in person before he was shipped overseas, Johnny was head over heels for her. He wrote her letters from Germany each week, sometimes multiple times a day. After they had only been dating for a month, Johnny spent a considerable portion of his signing bonus to rent an expensive apartment in Germany. In an incredibly impulsive move, he tried to get Vivian to come and live with him. The move surprised Johnny's comrades, who used their time in the force to explore, travel, and have a good time. Johnny, on the other hand, seemed interested in settling down as quickly as possible. Privately, some wondered whether Johnny really loved Vivian that much, or if he was just that desperate to receive love in return. It sometimes seemed like Johnny latched onto Vivian so tightly simply because she responded to his letters. He knew she was a conservative young woman who was clearly looking for a long-term relationship. He may have rented the apartment to show her he was just as serious and to prevent her from looking elsewhere for a man. But the grand gesture didn't pay off. Vivian's father put the kibosh on the move. He was fervently Catholic and did not like the idea of his daughter dating a Southern Baptist. Despite his protests, Johnny continued to exchange letters with Vivian for another two years. They were still together when Johnny was finally discharged from the Air Force at the age of 22. At long last, Vivian's father agreed to let the two marry as long as Johnny underwent a month of classes in Catholicism first. Johnny was willing to do whatever it took to keep Vivian's love. They decided to move to Memphis, Tennessee together 
as both had some family in town. Now that he had secured some much-needed personal support, Johnny turned his attention back to music. Even after the engagement, he wasn't comfortable sharing his entire self with Vivian. Thanks to his upbringing, he had never really sat down and talked about his feelings. There were some things he could only discuss in song. To that end, Johnny's older brother Roy introduced him to a couple of people he knew in Memphis who played music as a hobby. Luther Perkins and Marshall Grant, both 26 years old, hit it off with Johnny immediately. They were all easygoing Southern men who loved gospel and country music. Johnny began jamming with Luther and Marshall, and soon they decided to perform in public together. Their first concert was a free gig at a neighborhood church. The crowd was small, but public performance was a big step for Johnny and he had jitters for hours beforehand. He needed the audience to like him because his performances amounted to a bearing of his soul. He considered a rejection of his music to be a rejection of him personally. Fortunately, the audience at the church did seem to like the group's performance. After that first concert, music began to dominate Johnny's free time. He married Vivian in 1954, and the two moved into a small two-bedroom apartment. He got a day job as an appliance salesman and devoted all his remaining time to the new band. After a couple more public performances, Marshall, Luther, and Johnny felt they had enough experience to make a record. Details depend on the account, but somehow the three of them contacted record producer Sam Phillips, and scored an audition with him. Phillips was hot off the success of his new artist, Elvis Presley. He was looking for more artists to help grow the emerging rock and roll genre. Phillips was impressed with the trio. Since none of the three were experienced professional musicians, they had a raw sound that intrigued him. He especially liked the original songs Johnny played. Though Johnny's voice was shaky during the audition due to stage fright, Phillips could tell it had a depth and passion he could coax out. Johnny was overjoyed that Phillips recognized the passion in his songs. It was the first time anyone had acknowledged that they heard what Johnny was trying to say, and it made the approval all the more meaningful. Phillips signed them to Sun Records, and they set to work on a promotional single. Soon, Johnny was met with even more good news. Vivian was pregnant with their first child. Johnny told her that his recording contract would ensure a financially stable life for the family, but Vivian was already starting to worry that he preferred the adulation of small crowds over coming home to her. She wanted to be enough for him, but she didn't realize that Johnny's music was a second half of himself something he couldn't share at home. Leaving the stage behind completely would mean abandoning that side of his feelings. Vivian didn't fully understand what this meant for her husband, but nevertheless, she supported his dreams while she was pregnant. In May of 1955, she gave birth to a daughter, Roseanne. She was 21 and Johnny was 23. A month later, Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Two released their first single, Hey Porter. On the B-side of the record, they recorded another original song, Cry, Cry, Cry. Things moved quickly after that. Johnny's first big show came in August 1955, when he played alongside a spate of big acts in Memphis, including Elvis. By now, Elvis had been releasing songs for about a year, he and Johnny developed a cordial but competitive relationship. They playfully imitated each other at their concerts, and each tried to outsell the other. During the next year, Johnny's fame grew along with Elvis's. But he didn't see a royalty check until 1956, thanks to the fine print in his contract with Sun Records. Though Johnny considered Sam Phillips a friend as well as a business partner, it clearly didn't encourage Phillips to give him any special consideration. 
Phillips could see what music meant to Johnny, and he loved his sound because of it. He encouraged his artists' emotions when it benefited his bottom line. But that didn't have any bearing on the royalty arrangements. In Phillips' view, emotion was an indispensable part of music, but it had to be foregone when it came to business. At the time, Johnny was happy to persevere for the thrill of performing. Finally, six months after his debut single at 23 years old, he received his first check. With it, he was able to quit his day job selling appliances. He was on his way, but he would soon find out the life of a celebrity was not all roses. Up next, Johnny Cash deals with the struggles and temptations of fame. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Coming off the success of Cry, Cry, Cry and a new song, Folsom Prison Blues, in 1956, 23-year-old Johnny Cash was one of music's biggest rising stars. Later that year, he recorded Walk the Line, a hit which was only beaten in the charts by Elvis's Heartbreak Hotel. Johnny felt the world was his to conquer, and it was rapidly growing wider. And as his world expanded, he grew further away from his wife, Vivian. Their divide became obvious in 1956 after one of Johnny's most memorable performances at the Grand Ole Opry, a famous Nashville music venue. It was there that he first met 27-year-old June Carter. She was a member of the famous Carter family, a music group that sang gospel and old country songs. Johnny was enchanted with June, who was a beautiful and talented singer. On their first meeting, the two only shared a brief conversation backstage, but it was enough to make Johnny smitten. He jokingly told her that someday the two would be married. Meanwhile, Johnny's actual wife, Vivian, was not having an easy time on her own. When they got married, she had hoped for a conventional life as a wife and mother and a husband who worked normal hours. She was not prepared for the long weeks Johnny spent touring away from home or for the media attention. In previous episodes, we've seen that many musicians struggle to balance the demands of performance with their life at home. Unfortunately, musicians are often pressured to make early sacrifices in their personal lives for the sake of long-term success. This was the case for Johnny, who committed to a particularly demanding tour schedule to capitalize on the buzz from his first few singles. While he was gone, Vivian sat alone with their baby daughter, worried the fame was making her husband a different person from the man she married. In 1957, Johnny would prove her right. That year, he was in the midst of a grueling tour schedule and traveled over 100,000 miles all by car. Most nights, he was on the road and couldn't get a full eight hours of rest. Johnny badly needed a break, but he couldn't stand the thought of leaving the tour early and jeopardizing his budding career. He worked hard to conquer his stage fright and found the feeling of being on stage in front of screaming fans to be exhilarating. But at a certain point, he felt he just couldn't give every crowd the performance they deserved. He hated feeling like he had failed a fan, even if the fan was a complete stranger. After all, he saw his concerts as extensions of himself. And after growing up feeling like a disappointment to his father... Johnny would do whatever it took to never feel that way again. 
To help keep him awake and energetic on stage, a fiddle player on the tour offered him an amphetamine tablet. The pills were legal with a prescription and were seen as a miracle drug by most doctors at the time. Nobody had any idea of the long-term consequences. So when Johnny took it and experienced a sudden euphoria and influx of energy, he thought God himself had sent him the pills to help him spread his music to the world. For so long before that, Johnny had struggled to make small talk and felt uncomfortable during parties. He had been plagued by jitters before his concerts. Now, with the help of the pills, he felt invincible. He stayed up night after night, electrifying audiences and writing songs until the early hours of the morning. Then, he would sleep for long stretches and feel great when he awoke. It changed his life. The change in his personality didn't go unnoticed. When Johnny came back home after his tour, Vivian felt him growing more distant from her. He spent long hours awake in front of the television instead of coming to bed with her. She worried he was seeing other women. He reassured her that he was just adjusting to life on the road and that everything would settle down soon. In reality, things were only going to get more chaotic. His 1957 tour with the Collins Kids, a rock and roll duo consisting of a teenage brother and sister, added a new dimension to his darker side. Johnny, now 25, sought to replace the love he felt he was losing from Vivian with the devotion of someone who could appreciate him fully, music and all. He found himself strongly attracted to 16-year-old Lori Collins. His infatuation was so apparent that even Lori was aware of it. She maintains that nothing happened between them, but even so, Johnny acted so creepy around her that his bandmates became uncomfortable. According to his close friend, a singer named Johnny Western, Cash often agonized over his attraction to Lori. Western and Cash had long private talks together where Cash opened up about his crumbling marriage and drug addiction. Western counseled Cash to stay away from Lori, but he still felt conflicted. He always fell in love hard and fast, and he knew it was hard to let a romance go, even an imagined one. But all accounts hold that Cash never made a move on the teenager, and two years later, Lori married a different older man, 30-year-old Stu Carnal. But in 1958, Johnny's problems were still far from resolved. In addition to his marital problems and budding drug addiction, the 26-year-old had to deal with contract issues. His initial contract with Sun Records ended in July of 1958, and Johnny wasn't excited about the prospect of renewing it. Lately, Sam Phillips, the man who had signed Johnny, had been focusing most of his attention on his newest artist, Jerry Lee Lewis. Johnny felt snubbed. He had worked so hard for Phillips, sacrificing his sleep and sobriety for him. Meanwhile, Phillips only seemed interested in jumping on whatever artist was the hottest at the time. If Phillips wouldn't give him the respect and adulation he deserved, he would find someone else. Early in 1958, Johnny met a smooth-talking producer at a party who fit the bill perfectly. The producer convinced him to sign with Columbia Records after his son contract ended. Sam Phillips took Johnny's exit as an insult. Like Johnny, he seemed to regard relationships in the music industry as all business one moment and incredibly personal the next. He even told Johnny he loved him. But it was too little too late. Johnny started working for Columbia in August 1958 burning bridges as he went. The change in record company led to bigger changes in Johnny's life. His new manager urged him to move to California in search of film and television contracts. The strain that the move would put on his personal life never entered the manager's mind. All he saw was the prospect of higher earnings. Johnny's bandmates, Marshall and Luther, didn't want to leave their homes in Memphis, and the move led to infighting. 
It meant the trio would have to drive even longer to hit tour stops in the South, and they would be forced to leave their friends and extended families behind. Marshall and Luther weren't willing to sacrifice time with their families for TV opportunities and were soon back home in Tennessee. The change permanently dampened their relationship with Johnny. Now the three only saw each other while on tour or in the studio. Johnny had once again chosen his screaming fans over his closest friends. Still, the band hung together for the time being. But Luther and Marshall noticed Johnny acting more and more erratic. He couldn't arrive anywhere on time. Sometimes he skipped studio sessions, he was out at all hours of the night, and things were about to get even worse. In 1960, Johnny's friend and fellow musician, Johnny Horton, died in a car accident. The death of his friend put Johnny deeper in the throes of his addiction. He spent money lavishly and began breaking things when he got angry. The fact that he now had an entourage of people cleaning up his messes and enabling his destructive behavior only encouraged him. Despite his volatility, Vivian stayed with Johnny for the sake of their children. By now, they had three daughters together. But because Johnny's touring schedule dominated 80% of the year, she still ended up raising them almost entirely on her own. For Johnny's part, he hadn't hit bottom just yet. His troubles continued into 1961. High out of his mind one night, Johnny tried to knock down the door of a club at 3.30 in the morning because he thought people inside were trying to keep him out. When he finally managed to kick in the door, he realized the club was simply closed because it was 3.30 in the morning. At the age of 29, Johnny spent his first night in jail. He was let out the following morning when he had sobered up. He was embarrassed, but the incident wasn't a wake-up call. His drinking buddies laughed it off as a joke. There was no end in sight to his increasingly toxic behavior. Up next, Johnny Cash's appetite for destruction grows on an unprecedented scale. Now, back to the story. In 1962, at the age of 30, Johnny Cash's life was crumbling around him. He was heavily addicted to amphetamines, and his marriage was on the rocks. To cope, Johnny threw himself into his work and set on a rigorous touring schedule. During the tour, the depths of his growing appetite for destruction were put on full display. He and his bandmates set out to vandalize every hotel they stayed in, apparently in an effort to add some excitement to their nights in small, boring towns. Their antics ranged from cheeky to mean-spirited. His bandmate, Marshall Grant, carried a small circular saw, which he would use to cut the legs off of chairs. He also exploded small sticks of dynamite in the parking lot for a laugh. But the pranks weren't always in good fun. Johnny stabbed more than one hotel painting with a knife because he didn't like them. Once in New York, he dumped hay and buckets of horse manure all over the floor of his room. At the time, the band justified the destruction by reasoning that it was okay since they paid for everything afterwards. Johnny's seemingly limitless wealth and scores of adoring fans smoothed over every mistake he made. But most hotel managers and staff members were not entertained by the prospect of removing paint from the ceiling or replacing their radiators. Johnny and his bandmates were blacklisted from several hotel chains for their vandalism a decade before Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones became widely known for similar behavior. The pranks ultimately did little to improve Johnny's mood. He was totally under the thrall of amphetamines by now and upped his dosage monthly. He slept rarely, ate little, and snapped at his friends over nothing. Still, he couldn't give them up. In his mind, they allowed him to make the music everybody loved. Vivian was desperately worried about her husband, but Johnny refused to open up to her. 
She and the children came to fear the few mornings when Johnny was in town due to his volatile temperament. It wasn't just Johnny's personal life that suffered due to his drug use. The drugs wrought havoc on his vocal cords and made his throat permanently dry and scratchy. In 1962, he was set to perform at Carnegie Hall. It was a landmark achievement for a country artist to be featured at such a prestigious cosmopolitan venue. It should have been a high point for Johnny, but instead, the concert was a disappointment. His throat was so parched that he could barely choke out his lyrics, and it was obvious to everyone that he was stoned. Few people intervened, even after a string of disastrous concerts and erratic public behavior. Vivian was still in the dark about what was causing her husband to run from her, and other people in the industry were only concerned about their profits. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds, because you're mine. I walk the line. One of the few people Johnny could lean on was June Carter. Since their first meeting in 1956, the two had interacted more and more over the years as their tour schedules intersected. A friendship developed, which eventually blossomed into something more. Before long, the two were meeting for covert rendezvous and sleeping together. Johnny had always been attracted to June. Like he had with Vivian, he fell in love quickly and deeply. As time went on and he grew distant from Vivian, he became obsessed with June instead. To Johnny, it was always easier to move on than to address problems in a relationship. He wanted affection, and he wanted it fast. He gave his love to June, but they both knew they had to be careful. Since they were both married, they were never seen in the same hotel or out at dinner together. But even so, their relationship wasn't exactly a secret. Johnny's daughter, Kathy, claimed she was with her mother when she found out about Johnny's infidelity. According to her, we all went backstage after a show. I'll never forget it because Mom had brought it up often since. We were standing there waving goodbye to Dad, and he kissed us all and got into his car, and then June jumped in the car right next to him and waved to us. Vivian was crushed and infuriated. By 1963, at the age of 31, Johnny seemed to have more or less given up on the marriage. His sentiments were reflected in the song Understand Your Man, released that year. The lyrics include the lines, So just lay there on your bed and keep your mouth shut till I'm gone. No, don't give me that old familiar crying cussin' moan. As a devout Catholic, Vivian was opposed to divorce. She was determined to stick it out for as long as she could, but the sham marriage made both her and Johnny miserable. To deal with his stress, Johnny took to spending days out in the desert near their California property, drunk and high out of his mind. It seems the stress of lying to Vivian for so long was finally getting to him. He hated what he had become, but felt it was too late to save himself or possibly that he didn't deserve to be saved. Instead, he wandered the desert aimlessly by himself, searching for inspiration or relief from his shame and depression. The Benders led to a new album, Ballads of the True West, released in 1965. Two days after it debuted, he celebrated by getting drunk and driving June's car straight into a pole in Nashville. Police released him without a charge, even though he was clearly drunk. But the more the rules were bent and broken for him, the further he pushed the line. He skipped concerts at the last minute. He broke the lights on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry because they were too bright. He spent hours in the studio recording a single song because he kept forgetting the words. His unpredictability sometimes made his bandmates fear for their lives. After wrecking June's car, he crashed several more within months. He sank a boat, 
and broke a tractor. Again, instead of stepping in, Johnny's so-called friends and colleagues only covered for him. They knew he was dangerous behind the wheel, but they simply took themselves out of danger by banning him from driving while on tour. All this led to Johnny's most catastrophic act of negligence. In June of 1965, 33-year-old Johnny went on a fishing trip with his nephew in the Los Padres National Forest. According to Johnny, his camper got stuck in the creek bed, and when he tried to gun the engine, the exhaust pipe heated up and ignited the grass around him. His nephew wasn't present at the time, but he believed that Johnny had actually started the fire to warm himself and was too stoned to notice it spread around him. The fire eventually grew into an inferno that wiped out 508 acres of forest. A major portion of the habitat of the endangered California condors was destroyed in a matter of days. The United States government sued Johnny for $125,000. He later settled for $82,000. When asked why he set the fire, Johnny responded, I didn't do it, my truck did, and it's dead, so you can't question it. Even the fire and the ensuing public embarrassment couldn't make Johnny control himself. Just four months later, in October of 1965, he bought over 1,000 amphetamine and barbiturate tablets in Mexico. Customs agents caught him at the El Paso airport and imprisoned him, though again, he only stayed in jail for the night. Two months later, Johnny pled guilty to smuggling drugs. He received a misdemeanor charge and paid a $1,000 fine. The arrest finally inspired Johnny to get clean, but his sober streak was only temporary. A few months later, in 1966, he was back on pills. At the end of his tour that year, instead of coming back home to see Vivian and his children, he hid out at his friend Gene Ferguson's house. For weeks, he dodged calls from both Vivian and June. Leaving Vivian alone and refusing to even check in with her was more than she could bear. She filed for divorce in August of 1966. It took a year for Johnny to agree to his ex-wife's terms, but she was given custody and monthly allowances for the children. Johnny tried to lay aside his bitterness, but he wasn't yet able to ditch the drugs. About this time in his life, he later said, it just felt like I was at the end of the line. I got to feeling that I'd taken so many pills that I was going to blow or something. I couldn't stand myself anymore. I wanted to get away from me. Johnny considered killing himself, but held on because of his love for June Carter and his children. But no matter what he did, he couldn't kick his habit. In November of 1967, it would lead to yet another arrest. On the night of November 3rd, Johnny wandered around Lafayette, Louisiana in a drugged out haze looking for a friend's house. He crawled through bushes to look through windows on the quiet street, making no effort to be discreet. After banging on the wrong door a few times, he scared a woman living in one of the houses and she called the police. Loud sirens and bright lights converged around Johnny leaving him disoriented and confused. By now, he could barely remember why he was on the street in the first place. Police arrested him after realizing he was stoned and carrying a hefty amount of drugs on him. Johnny was put in jail for a night. He tried to bribe one of the officers to let him out, but they wouldn't take the money. Even so, the sheriff, Ralph Jones, decided to drop the charges the next day because he was a fan of Johnny's music. But this time, he wouldn't get off with a good-natured pat on the back. The sheriff sat Johnny down and gave him a stern talk. He told Johnny that he was wasting his life and his potential with the drugs. Though people had given Johnny similar talks in the past, something about the way the sheriff spoke made him reevaluate his life. He decided that no matter what else happened, he wanted to marry June Carter. And he knew she would never agree as long as he was on drugs. 
Johnny invited June and her parents to stay in his mansion with him to help him get clean. A psychiatrist, Dr. Nat Winston, who was a friend of Johnny's, came by every night after work to check on him. The four of them tried to check Johnny into a hospital for his addiction, but he refused, worried about the negative press that would ensue. For 32 days, Johnny endured the painful effects of amphetamine withdrawal after quitting cold turkey. By the end of it, he felt reborn. His relationship with June intensified, and Johnny experienced a revival of his faith. Everything seemed to be falling in place for the first time in a long time. The only missing piece was his career. He was experiencing a slump in sales, and the record company didn't have much confidence he would ever rebound. To garner some attention, Johnny convinced the executives to let him record a concert inside a prison. He'd been performing at prisons since the late 50s and had always wanted to record an album there. In the past, executives had dismissed the idea, not wanting to tarnish Johnny's image in the eyes of his conservative country western audience. Now, they saw they had little to lose and allowed him to record an album at Folsom Prison. The result was electrifying. The album sold six million copies and began his successful comeback. Though Johnny had never spent more than a single night in jail at a time, the concert gave him the indelible image of an outlaw. His success was capped in 1968 when he finally proposed to June Carter on stage during a concert in London. The two married a week later in Kentucky. The next year, his hot streak continued when he was given a TV series. The Johnny Cash Show was a variety show that hosted live concerts from country legends, a rarity on network TV at the time. Throughout the show's tenure, Johnny stayed mostly drug-free, even through its disappointing cancellation in 1971, when he was 39. After the show ended, Johnny committed himself to philanthropy and his faith. He produced a gospel album and became friends with televangelist Billy Graham. But his religious revival did not improve his record sales. His next two albums performed poorly, and his lack of musical fulfillment led him back to drugs yet again. In 1977, at the age of 45, Johnny relapsed. By now, the drugs had dulled him to the point that even June couldn't get through to him. Then, in September 1981, at the age of 49, Johnny was kicked in the chest by an ostrich named Waldo. The bird, which lived on Johnny's property, ran toward him as he walked by. When he tried to defend himself with a stick, Waldo took it as an attack and retaliated. Waldo kicked Johnny so hard, he broke five ribs and was sent to the hospital. The painkillers he was prescribed inflamed his addiction once again. But no matter what, Johnny couldn't stay away from the stage for long. After two years in 1983, 51-year-old Johnny tried again to revitalize his sound. Unfortunately, once again, he found little success. His drug use had gotten so bad that he began to hallucinate. In a hotel room while on a European tour, he imagined the walls of the hotel had a pull-out bed and began punching the wall to get it loose. June repeatedly cried for him to stop, but he kept punching the wall so hard that he cut his hand and had to go to the hospital. While he was lying in bed, June called a coalition of his closest friends to stage an intervention. At the end of a long talk, Johnny looked down and nodded. He finally agreed to go to a rehab center. He checked into the Betty Ford Clinic in 1983. He stayed there for six weeks and went through a 12-step program that blended his faith with in-depth counseling. From June's perspective, he was more lucid than he had been in decades. Though in later years he struggled with relapse, his stay at the center in 1983 was largely his final longest-lasting turning point. Johnny would continue to make albums for two more decades 
making some of the most critically acclaimed records of his career well into his 60s. During this time, he managed to stay off drugs and repair old relationships. He passed away on September 12, 2003, at the age of 71, from issues related to diabetes. His wife of 35 years, June Carter, had passed away just four months prior. After years of struggling with feelings of inadequacy, Johnny Cash found fulfillment in music. But his passion was exploited by those in the industry who were more interested in making sales than nurturing an artist. With the help of his faith and a partner who could appreciate him flaws and all, Johnny eventually found peace with himself and conquered his inner darkness. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back to explore the dark side of Elvis Presley. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Terrell Wells and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.